0: visit the allin-gospel.com website All right. Well, first off, just want to share with you guys how excited and grateful I am to be able to dig into God's Word and study His Word with you guys tonight. So, thank everybody for this opportunity. Um, Tonight, we're going to be going and turning to the final chapter in the gospel according to John, John chapter 21. I chose to study this chapter for a few reasons. Number one, I love to fish, and if you love to fish, you're going to really enjoy this chapter. And number two, I find it fascinating the Lord used a miracle in the form of fishing to reveal himself to his disciples after his resurrection, which is probably why this post-resurrection appearance has stuck the most with me personally. And then, number three, I think we can all relate to Peter when it comes to our walk with Christ, especially as the Lord restores Peter in this chapter. So, before we dive into the word, I want to catch you all up to speed as to what is going on in the gospel according to John. Number one, some commentators mention in Christian tradition, John's gospel is referred to as the fourth gospel, suggesting it was composed after the other three. Polycarp, a second century Christian martyr who knew John personally, told Irenaeus that John had written the book during the Apostles' time serving the church in Ephesus. These factors suggest that John wrote the book between A.D. 85 and A.D. 95, so we get a relative time frame as when we can expect this scripture was recorded. Other scholars have claimed the gospel, according to John, which has 21 chapters, covers 20 days of the Lord's three-and-a-half-year ministry here on this earth. In chapter 21, we're going to be reading about the third appearance recorded in the Gospel according to John and the seventh of ten post resurrection appearances recorded within all four Gospels. So, in the three previous chapters, we read about the betrayal and arrest of Jesus in chapter 18. In chapter 19, we read about Jesus Christ dying on the cross as the ultimate sacrifice for our sins, followed by his resurrection in chapter 20 along with two post-resurrection appearances to his disciples, with the most recent appearance uh, of the Lord revealing his hands and his side to Thomas. So not only was this appearance significant for Thomas in particular, to realize that the risen Christ um, uh, was crucified about 10 days earlier, but no doubt he and the rest of the disciples realized the significance of the scars as fulfillment of prophecy from Isaiah 53.5. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Now chapter 21 takes us north to the Sea of Galilee, so grab your tackle box, don't forget the net, and let's jump into the boat as we join uh, the disciples in chapter 21. All right, John chapter 21, verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So notice in verse 1 the word revealed, or in some translations you guys might see manifest is the Greek word phanerahu. It is a verb which means to make manifest or visible or known uh, to that which has been hidden or unknown. So the same Greek word is used several times in the Bible. It is used earlier in John chapter 2, verse 11, and is also used by Paul in Romans 1, verse 19 and Titus 1, verse 3. So Jesus reveals himself rather than disciples seeing that it is him, if you can see that subtle uh, distinction. And this isn't abnormal of the Lord to reveal himself or manifest himself uh, to his followers both before and after his resurrection. In the previous chapter, when Mary Magdalene was talking to Jesus at the very tomb he was resurrected from, she supposed she was talking with a gardener before Jesus revealed himself or made himself known to her. So this is a common theme, and again, a chapter later, we're seeing the same thing happen. So why the Sea of Tiberias? The Sea of Tiberias, which is the Roman name for the Sea of Galilee, which is also known as the Sea of Chinnereth, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correct. I'm not the greatest at that. But uh, it's also known as the Sea of Chinereth, um, and we're going to be reading about the Sea of Chinnereth in our study in a few weeks in Joshua chapter 12 and 13, is located about 60 miles north of Jerusalem. The reason we find the disciples here of all places and fishing is not because they somehow gave up their mission, as some commentators like to give them a bad rep for. Rather, they went to Galilee in faithful obedience as the Lord commanded them to do so after his resurrection in Matthew 28, verse 10. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So the fact that his disciples are in Galilee and not being idle, but actually going out and fishing. Um, because this is what most of them know how to do best, several of these disciples were professional fishermen, is actually an act of obedience to what the Lord asked them to do. In verse 2, we get a description of the disciples in the fishing boat. And it's no surprise here, Peter and the sons of Zebedee, which is John and James, are in the boat, as all three of them are professional fishermen. In fact, it was on the very shores of this very sea that they're now on, where they had first met and followed Jesus approximately three years earlier, as noted in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. Thomas, who Jesus just showed his scars to in the previous chapter, is also in the boat. Nathaniel, who some scholars believe is another name used for Bartholomew, is also in the boat. And before studying this chapter, admittedly, I did not recall much about Nathaniel. Um, But he is quoted earlier in John 1 as asking Philip, another disciple of Jesus, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So he's that guy. He's in the boat. The other two disciples in the boat, which are not mentioned, are most likely Andrew, Peter's brother, who is also a professional fisherman by trade, and Philip, who we read about being affiliated with Nathaniel earlier in John chapter 1. But we don't know for sure, and clearly we're not meant to know, as the Bible does not mention the names of the other two disciples. In verse 3, the disciples fished fish but caught nothing. So think about that for a second. It's kind of interesting that the disciples caught nothing considering their formula for success. Number one, the boat had the right crew. So half the disciples listen, verse 2 had a career fishing commercially. Number two, these were familiar waters. So all these disciples lived in the region of Galilee, and we know half the fishermen in this very boat have professionally fished this very sea from earlier accounts recorded in the Gospels of Luke and Matthew. And number three, the crew had the right strategy. The disciples fished during the best time, which was at night, as most fishing was done at night so that fish would not see or swim around the nets. In modern day times, uh, so today, they actually use nylon nets uh, to prevent this problem. And when fishing is permitted, it is actually done during the day because the nylon nets are so effective. So you can imagine the frustration or disappointment these disciples were experiencing, especially those in the boat that fish for a living. I mean, they were out here all night and caught nothing. But haven't we seen a similar uh, similar situation play out before in Luke chapter 5? Recall about three years earlier on this very sea in Luke chapter 5, verses 4 through 6. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets." And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. So we can see the Lord is setting a similar stage here, most likely for Peter's benefit as he restores him later on in this chapter and reminds him to rely on Jesus and not his own efforts. I like Chuck Missler's commentary of verse 3. They were, uh, they were there all night long, and you could just imagine Peter working the net all night long, fruitless evening, the only thing he pulls out of the water are memories, memories of that previous time when the Lord helped catch things, and memories when he had walked on the water on this very sea, and, of course, obviously some of the memories he would like to throw back, the memory of not many days ago when he denied his Lord Jesus Christ. Continuing on with verse 4, Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they are not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. So in verse 4, when it says, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus, some could say it was obvious the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. After all, it was early morning, so the visibility would have been not as what it would be during full daylight. Number two, they're Potentially could have been missed on the lake as what happens in the early morning. Uh, but in any regard, the Lord had not yet manifested himself or made himself known to the disciples in the boat. Verse 5, Jesus addresses his disciples with the word children. Now, when I first read this years ago, um, I always thought that was just an interesting use of words, that the Lord would use children to address his disciples. I thought that was pretty cool. So I looked up the Greek word for children, and the word children in Greek is and I'm going to probably butcher the pronunciation, but "padehan," um pahedion, rather. So a noun that means a young child, an infant, a half-grown boy, or figuratively an immature Christian. So according to uh, one of the sources, it's actually used 51 times in the Bible. It can also be found uh, earlier in John chapter 4 and John 16. One commentary mentioned it is a colloquial expression Used uh, usually used by an elder of fishermen speaking to younger fishermen. Some commentators use the term "lads" in place of children. So, hey, lads, catch anything out there? In verse six, again, uh, this is a miraculous catch of fish, similar to what had happened years earlier in Luke 5, and no doubt this had to be turned on. This had to turn on some light bulbs for Peter, James, and John who had experienced this in Luke 5. And let's recall how the disciples responded to that miracle in Luke 5 after they had witnessed it. Luke 5, verses 6 through 11. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help, and they came and filled both the boats, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid, from now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. One question I want all of us to consider tonight as we continue through our study of John 21 is. What have you left for Christ? Or another way to think about that question is, what do you still need to leave for Christ? Let's continue with verse 7. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. John verse 8. John 21, verse 8. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards off. So in verse 7, the disciple whom Jesus loved, this would be obviously referencing John. It's a phrase used throughout the gospel um, as a way to identify John. So if I had to pick a visual representation of Peter throwing himself into the sea, I love how Sean always uses movies as good visual representations. I would probably pick Forrest Gump, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with that movie, Forrest Gump. So uh, it's the scene, if you recall, where Forrest sees Lieutenant Dan unexpectedly on the dock. And what was his reaction? Forrest was just grinning from ear to ear. He throws himself into the sea, waving as he does it, and just utter excitement. And you can just see this joy that Peter must have had on his face as he leapt toward the Lord. And... Uh, As you see in Forrest Gump, he swims right to Lieutenant Dan, ready to embrace him. And so uh, I just love that visual. So I like this commentary on verse 7 by John Eldridge. Peter's 100 yards offshore. That's about three city blocks. It's a long way to swim, especially in a full-length robe. Because you remember, Peter threw on his outer garment before he jumped into the sea. It would be like trying to swim wrapped in a bedsheet. Peter doesn't care. He doesn't wait for the boat forgets about the fish, and as quick as you can say, Jack, be nimble, he hits the water, swimming, thrashing, gasping for air, then stumbling ashore fast as he can to get to Jesus. In verse 8, the rest of the disciples do the heavy lifting, or dragging the net full of fish. Again, a testament of how much the Lord has blessed his faithful disciples. When they worked collectively to try to drag this net and draw it out of the water, they weren't able to do it. And so, just the understand the abundance of the Lord's blessing for them had have just been in awe, just amazing. Continuing on with verse 9, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. So in verse 9, one of the first things noted by John when uh, the disciples get out of the boat was seeing the charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. One can only imagine what sort of mixed emotions Peter must be going through right now. He must be shivering from the soaked garments as the cool morning air reaches him while he rises out of the sea to meet his Lord. I wonder what Peter must have been thinking when he saw the charcoal fire. Was he excited that he was going to get warmth from it, that it would soon provide or did disappointment consume his heart? as he remembered several days earlier, the last time he approached a charcoal fire was to warm himself when he denied Jesus three times, just as the Lord predicted in John 13 verse 38. Let's take a look at that moment in John 18:18. 18, 18. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. And later we see in verse 25, Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You are also not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. So Peter, seeing this charcoal fire in place, has to be having this flood of memories, as he's remembering the last time he saw this charcoal fire and warming himself next to it. So now the disciples, they could have had a different memory in mind. So when they saw the Lord with fish and bread, they could have been reminded of the two miraculous accounts when Jesus fed the crowd of 4,000 and the crowd of 5,000 with the fish and uh, loaves of bread near that same shore which they now stood. No doubt it was a morning full of memories which span roughly three and a half years. In verse 10, note how Jesus already prepared the main meal, but asked his disciples to contribute out of the abundance he just provided them. Notice this is another account of Jesus wanting something to eat after his resurrection. My kind of guy. He wanted to make it clear to his disciples he was truly resurrected and physically hungered as they did. In verse 11, perhaps even this is a miracle, how the disciples, a few verses earlier, We're not able to draw the net out of the water collectively, yet Peter is now somehow able to haul the net ashore by himself. So (laughs) pretty amazing when you think about that. And it just, for whatever reason, doesn't seem to get as much attention. But when you look at that, it's like, holy cow, this is, that's got to be a miracle in itself. And one verse that comes to mind is Isaiah 40, verse 31. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles, mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Only the Lord knows why there was 153 fish caught. There are libraries, if you can believe it, and books out there of the theories as to why the number 153, and it actually dates back to the first century, with some notable figures such as Augustine having a theory on this. Um, Again, the Lord only knows. Uh, so, why was 153 even listed? In my opinion, any good fisherman would count his catch. And to be blessed that much, you're almost excited to count just to say, whoa, or like, how much did how much you get in here? Like, this is really exciting to continually just count the blessings. It's innumerable, it's unfathomable. So, although there were so many, the net was not torn. This particular part of the verse uh, is also displaying to the reader. This was a completely separate event from what was recorded in Luke 5 three years earlier. Um, It's a similar miracle, but again, the nets had broken in Luke 5, but they didn't in this. Moving on to verse 12. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Note in verse 12 the humbleness of Jesus asking uh, his disciples to join him in the breakfast of which he had already made for them. I mean, think about it. These guys have been out on the water all night, no doubt frustrated, probably tired physically, probably hungry physically, and now exactly what they need is a good time with the Lord and some food. And they're getting it, and the Lord's already prepared it for them. So none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Again, this was a morning full of memories. This was three and a half years in the making. All these memories that are just coming to life right before their eyes. They realized from a hundred yards off that this was certainly Jesus. In verse 13, taking the bread and fish and giving it to his disciples, again, the Lord is just continuing to reaffirm his physical presence. He's fully resurrected. As the disciples remembered the Lord feeding the crowd of 5,000 with fish and bread from John 6, no doubt the scars on his hands from being nailed to the cross days earlier as he broke the bread. His disciples no doubt would have noticed this. Realizing in full understanding the new covenant at the Last Supper when he broke the bread and said, it is his body broken for them. So not only do we have a continual visual for the disciples to see the breaking of the bread from their Lord, but then they get to see the scars on the hands, and then they get to remember, oh yeah, that's right, before that even took place, God told us that his body was going to be broken for us, for our sins. Pretty amazing visual. Verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. And in verse 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, "Feed my sheep." As you can imagine, there's a lot going on here. So, in verse 15, and notice how the Lord captures Peter's full attention using his full name. In verse one, uh, or not verse one, but in John chapter one, verse 42, is when the Lord gives uh, Peter his nickname, Caiaphas or Peter. And so uh, it's really interesting to see how the Lord is now using his full name. It's almost like when I was younger, growing up, my mom would get my attention right away. But Casey John Waterman, I mean, she would just, it's almost like the Lord is just, hey, Peter, I need to talk to you. Pay attention here. So he's He's gathering his full attention, and he's asking Peter specifically, do you love me more than these? And the first time I read this verse, um, to be honest with you, I, had thought he was referring to the fish, because that's all I can think about when I read about uh, fishing and all the good times, but the word that he uses for these is a Greek word, hoitos, and it is a pronoun mentioned hundreds of times in the Bible, meaning this one or visibly present here. So when Jesus is saying, do you love me more than these, he's referring to something that's physically there. And To be honest with you, after further study, I've concluded that the Lord was referring to the other disciples in this case, as if asking, Peter, do you love me more than these disciples? After all, Peter pridefully boasted to the Lord after the Lord had just got done telling Peter where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow after. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you in John 13 verse 36. And again, in Mark 14, verse 29, Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. So this is pretty interesting to hear how the Lord is bringing up this question again. Do you love me more than these? You had said that you did, and yet you denied me three times. Peter, do you love me more than these? So the Lord is clearly restoring Peter in front of the disciples. By now, they're, they're, they're picking it up. They're realizing, okay, like the Lord's got some intention here. Notice how the Lord uh, does this, though, with grace and mercy. He doesn't attack Peter. He doesn't force Peter to say he's sorry. Rather, he challenges Peter to love. Jesus wanted to know if Peter still had a proud estimation of his love and devotion to Jesus, or if it was authentic, if it was humble, if it was honest. In verses 15 through 17, Jesus restores Peter three times. In each case, all the words used for love uh, had somewhat of a slightly different meaning. So you see, the Greeks had several words to describe love, similar to how we have several words to describe snow. We've got sleet, we've got snow, we have blizzard, etc. So, for example, in verse 15, when the Lord asks if Simon loves him, the word he uses for love is agapeo, which is a Greek verb which means a deep sacrificial commitment or an unselfish love. Notice Peter's response with complete humbleness by starting with, you know. It's important because he's acknowledging the Lord's sovereignty in his life when he says, you know that I love you. He uses the word phileo, which is the Greek verb to love, to be friendly to one. Um, And this is actually probably the meaning of, you know, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, that phileo, it's the same sort of meaning that um, there's an affection, there's a brotherly love that's there. So again... Peter is no longer pridefully overstating his love for the Lord. He is honest, and he's, pride, er, he's honest, and he's not prideful. The term "feed my lambs" that Jesus uses in verse 15 is a Greek term used for continually or keep on feeding my lambs, or those um, that are new or young in their walk with Christ. Uh, so this is actually a form of the Lord restoring Peter. Uh, in a form of commission. So you've got some work to do, and this is how you can do so. Continue to feed those that are young in Christ. In verse 16, again, we see Jesus use the word agapeo when he says, do you love me? A deep sacrifice and commitment. And again, Peter responds with the same, phileo, humbly answering the Lord with honesty, not overstating it. Tend my sheep. So this uh, phrase in verse 16 Um, is actually, tend is actually used to pastor or where we get shepherd or pastor from. So it's to continuously be performed, meaning to pastor the body of Christ. And as you see, he uses the term sheep as opposed to lambs uh, in verse 15. And that means to pastor those that are more mature in Christ, to continually to shepherd them. In verse 17, Jesus asks a third time using the same verb, phileo this time, as opposed to agapeo. Jesus speaks the same language and no doubt is looking Peter right in the eye when Jesus asked, do you love me? This time using phileo, just to hammer home that final point. And so no doubt, eye to eye, Peter and the Lord are having this moment and notice how Peter is grieved. You read in verse 17. And grieved, I looked up, is the Greek word for lipeo which is a Greek uh, verb which means to make sorrowful or to affect with sadness, cause grief, or to throw into sorrow. After hearing this the third time, of all places sitting next to a fire, no doubt Peter's memory must have flooded with the image recorded in Luke 22, verse 61, when the Lord looked at Peter after he had denied the Lord three times. Do you remember that? And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. It's no doubt Peter's grieved right now. I mean, that visual, that memory has to just be up front. And now Peter is staring into the eyes of his Lord and Savior with a chance to confirm his love for the Lord for the third time. Peter responds again in humbleness with his response to the Lord in the third questioning, with phileo um, used again. Only this time Peter says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I, phileo, love you. Peter humbly submits to the Lord's will, understanding now with full certainty the Lord knows Peter better than he knows himself. If we continue on to verse 18 of John chapter 21 The Lord starts with, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. In verse 18, Jesus' response is actually prophetic, he is actually telling Peter how he is to die. I mean, that's a pretty interesting thing to know about yourself. Um, I like David Guzik's uh, thoughts on these verses. So he says, Jesus spoke of Peter's future when another would bind him or gird you and carry Peter to a place he did not want to go, a place with stretched out hands crucified on a cross. It would be by this death that he would glorify God. Yet it also gave Peter assurance. In the crucial moment a few weeks before, Peter denied Jesus three times to save himself from the cross. Jesus assured Peter most assuredly, as he said, truly, truly, He would face the challenge of the cross once again. This time, he would embrace it. Jesus promised Peter that he would die in utter faithfulness to his Messiah and Lord. Ancient writers state about 34 years after this, Peter was crucified and that he deemed it so glorious a thing to die for Christ that he begged to be crucified with his head downwards, not considering himself worthy to die in the same posture in which the Lord did. It's just amazing to think about. I mean, that's, you just got to be humbled right now if you're Peter. So in this dramatic moment, Jesus gave uh, the last words to Peter. Years before he called Peter to follow him. Now Peter knew that continuing to follow Jesus would mean a certain cross. Peter was once again to follow his Messiah, teacher, and Lord, even till death. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? So interesting response uh, from Peter here. It's almost as if he's trying to pass the buck at first glance. And whoa, Lord, that's pretty deep. What about this guy? You know, but uh, when you actually look at it, He's probably thinking to himself, there's some sort of inner circle here, right? So we see earlier that Peter, John, and James were there at the transfiguration of Christ. We see that they got to be in the Garden of Gethsemane. We get to see that um, John and Peter were the ones that had leaned back at the Lord's Last Supper, and that they were asking the Lord, like, who's going to betray you? And the Lord explained to them it was going to be Judas. So they have this somewhat inner circle and so Peter's looking around going, well, I know what my destiny is now. What about this guy? And so it's, uh, it's interesting when you hear how the Lord responds to that. The Lord makes it clear. John's business with the Lord is none of Peter's business. It's pretty obvious. The Lord, again, challenges Peter to love the Lord and to focus on his own walk with the Lord. Do you ever catch yourself doing what Peter just did? Oh, this sermon would be perfect for such and such to hear. How many times have you done that? I know I've done that. This is a humbling reminder to put your faith in Jesus Christ and no one else and to focus on him and not others' business. In verse 23, John points out a rumor that was spreading, but he was faithful to the Lord by quickly extinguishing those rumors and setting the record straight. I love how you see in verses 23 and 24, he just... Makes it very clear. Or, or verse 23, it just makes it very clear. Look, the Lord knew what He was talking about, and we don't need to look further into it. We're just going to set the record straight right away. In verse 24, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, these are also. Now, there were also many other things that Jesus did, where every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So here John explains that uh, he was the unnamed disciple who is referred to in several previous places. Again, this is the phrase that we continuously see throughout the book of John, um, and that John gave solemn testimony to the truth of what he wrote. His testimony is true. So this is uh, again John just nailing home the point. Look, these words are true, and. I'm the one who testifies about it. It's God's word. So uh, there are many other things that Jesus did, and it would be impossible to write them all. I just think that's super cool as a way to end the book of John, because you think about it, and it's like, how much more miracles could you possibly put in the gospel? And yet to see that there is way more that wasn't even written down, it's like, wow, God is just awesome. So in conclusion to tonight's study, before we end, I guess I want to pose this final question to everybody here. Have you jumped out of the boat yet? Have you left it all behind so that you could love Jesus number one in your life? Or are you still being held back in the boat? We can all put ourselves in Peter's sandals if we're honest with ourselves, I think we have all experienced what Peter was going through during his reconciliation with the Lord as we have all sinned and have all fallen short of the glory of God. Maybe it's your pride. Maybe it's gossip. Maybe it's a secret sin that is holding you back from loving the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Whatever it is that is holding you back, lay it at the cross of Jesus Christ. After all, didn't God restore Peter? And if he can restore Peter, can he restore you? And after all, didn't God give you his all? For God so loved the world he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16 Let us follow in Peter's footsteps and humbly repent to the Lord, denying ourselves and trusting in Jesus Christ as our Redeemer, our Lord, and our Savior. Amen? All right, let's uh, close with a word of prayer here. Heavenly Father, I just uh, thank you so much for your word, and I just thank you so much that we can learn from this example when we read that you restored Peter. You did so out of love, Lord. Peter had fallen, as we all do, And like Peter, we need you, Lord, to lift us back up. We can't do it on our own. It's not by our own works or by our own might or our own will, as Peter had so desperately attempted and as we attempt to do so many times. Lord, it's all you, and we need you. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to work on our hearts, that we would continue to jump out of the boat, that we would not let anything hold us back, and that we would just trust you, Jesus, that we would put our full faith and our full love into you. Just thank you for this amazing Bible study and this fellowship with these brothers and sisters in Christ. And uh, we just pray that you would be with us this week. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, posted on your social media.